Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Donardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. I have two places, kind of like two directions where I think would be interesting to start as I start to uh, continue to interact with companies and and people and get a lot of questions through LinkedIn and different things like that. And so... Um, the place where I think that uh, you'll really jive on this one as well is the idea of actually doing the work um, and how much that actually impacts, one, your learning, but two, how as you do the process of doing the work, how the strategy evolves. And so I was hoping to just kind of like set the table for you right there and hope you can... Uh, add a little color to that and then we'll go back and forth and we'll start grabbing some questions. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a good one. Um, yeah. So doing the work, you know, I, uh, actually, I, I've worked with, um, sales leaders, marketing leaders, um, at big companies, small companies alike that, um, unfortunately have become so detached from doing the work that they just become some mythical figure and they retitle their, their, them, their, their, uh, themselves to evangelist in some cases. Right. So now their job becomes just, you know, doing shows like this, but the difference between us is like, we're in the trenches. Like, you know, I, I have a day full of actual work to do after this. Like I go into Google ads accounts and make adjustments to our campaigns. I am a, I'm like a player coach, right? Like uh-huh. I'm not just telling my team, like, do this, do that, do this, do that. We should do this. We should do that. We should do this. <laughs> right. We're like reviewing metrics. Like we're making act, we're taking action based on what the data tells us. Like we're not just looking at dashboards all day. All right, team go to work. Time uh-huh. for me to go be an evangelist. Right. Uh-huh. So, um, I actually have a big problem with, with, uh, you know, executive roles and, and leaders, quote unquote leaders who, uh, they get so detached from, from the tactical side and they're just all about at a high level strategy, you know, and then they, they kind of lose touch. And, and those are the kinds of people that unfortunately in this climate where everything is changing faster than ever before, um, you're seeing, you know, CMOs get canned in, in, um, in favor of chief growth officers, right? Or like you've seen companies like Pepsi make those changes. And now in SaaS, I think that's going to be like the new normal. Um, so if you can't, it's, it's Darwinism, man. It's the, if you can't keep up and you can't run at, at the pace of, of the fastest, then I think you're just going to get left behind. And the best way to stay in shape is to continue doing tactical work. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I know it's, a, it's not the easiest thing for a lot of you know, people in leadership roles, but I think at all costs now, you have to still keep that hunger, keep that fire, and don't become one of these people that just become button pushers and paper pushers because it's going to be harder and harder and harder for you to, to really know what you're talking about when you come to that table, right? And, and, and like 
certain lead for certain leads from certain sources aren't performing and you don't know why. And that's a bad thing. So, um, I'll pause there and allow for some reaction. Yeah. Especially if you're a, a leader and you're in your thirties and forties and a long time left in your career, like where do you think this is going to end up toward the end of your career? Um, and so I think it's critically important to become the best inside of your company at not necessarily like tinkering with the ads, but I do feel like it's, it's really important to know how to, so therefore I think one of the interesting pieces is that uh, a lot of companies will hire consultants, agencies, or their own employees and not know whether or not they're doing a good job because they don't know how to do it themselves. And so like I've gone into companies before and they have like a specialist level employee running a million dollars in media budget and have no idea whether or not it's working or not. I talked to another company that had eight, $8 million in AdWords managed by an agency. And the first thing the CEO said to me when he called me said, we're spending $8 million in AdWords and I don't know whether or not it's working. And so like, that's a problem. That's a, that's a real problem. And so whoever the owner is, CEO, CMO, chief growth officer, whatever, really needs to be able to, at a detailed level, audit and know whether or not their partners, employees, whoever is doing a good job or not. And in order to do that, you have to know what you're talking about. And so like um, this, I think the CMO should start the podcast. I think the CMO should be the, the potentially be the face of the podcast, right? Like I, I do think, and we talked about this last week or actually earlier this week, cause we're doing two, the process of actually doing a podcast is all of the value, meeting the people, talking to them, figuring out how to distribute the content, figuring out what topics to do, figuring out how to distribute it. All those different pieces are super important. Cool. What do you yeah. got on that? Or we can, uh, we can kind of move to questions. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm good on that. Um, I, I just, I personally just love, love that topic because, um, yeah, like you said, where do you think this is going to end up? It's not going to get any easier. It's not going to slow down right now with all that free, extra free time you've got, um, for you, cause most people don't have to commute anymore. Um, invest that into learning, right? Invest that into actually going into your Google ads account and poking around in there, start familiarizing yourself with the kinds of landing pages that traffic is being sent to start familiarizing yourself, like literally go into any, uh, campaign sort by most expensive ad group to least expensive and start figuring shit out. <laughs> like go in there and look, it's that simple. So I guess we can, we can stop there and, and move on. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, uh, we had a couple questions come in through email again, if anyone's in, they have questions they want to ask. We kind of set the, set the stage, but this is fair game for anything, uh, marketing, LinkedIn content, um, ads, media strategy events, anything that you guys are career, anything that you guys are working on, feel free to drop it in the, uh, in the chat. And we get started with this one that came from Elizabeth by email. Um, she said, I was intrigued by the post you shared on LinkedIn that webinars should be for brand building, not for demand gen. It's a good point, but I would love to see an alternative method suggested. What's the better way to do webinars? Um, yeah, what, exactly what we're doing right now, I think is going to be the future of webinars. Exactly what we're doing right now, I think is really going to be the future of webinars. So um, what we started doing at Nextiva um, is, so we, we forgot, we gave up on the idea that you need to do webinars for leads a long time ago. 
And I used to lead marketing at a company called Sales Hacker, where webinars were a humongous part of the strategy. It was, it, it was a huge part of the strategy. It was a high volume webinar strategy. We were doing two webinars a week with various different partners. And the reason why partner, and they were sponsored webinars. So sponsor, so they were sponsored by like tech companies that were vendors. And the reason why those companies came to us to do the webinars was not for lead, lead gen, quote unquote. The reason why they came to do webinars with Sales Hacker and why they would pay to do webinars with Sales Hacker was because they didn't have the audience. They didn't have the email list. They couldn't send out one email to their list and, and get 500 signups that were actually relevant. They couldn't reach the audience that we had, right? They didn't have the social firepower. They didn't have the, <clears throat> like a lot of them were up and coming, fast growing startups that had a lot of money, but they had no brand. So they didn't have brand. Um, they didn't know how to promote it. They didn't actually have the infrastructure to run the webinars. They had no idea how to set this up internally themselves and run it. They had no one to manage the process right? So it was worth it for them to essentially outsource all that legwork. They, they knew the importance of brand and community. They knew that sales hacker was, um, the place, the website, the brand that was more trusted than vendors, right? Um, because we had this, this sense of community. We had all the experts from the sale B2B sales world, um, <coughs> contributing to our site and to our events and to our, um, our, our ecosystem of things that we were doing. So, um, it worked, right? Because th these, these people would also be able to, um, essentially like build themselves up as, as their own thought leaders from these vendor companies. Cause a lot of these vendor companies had zero thought leadership, right? Um, so, so that's, that's why it all worked. It wasn't about like, Hey, uh, come, come do the sales hacker webinar and you know we'll we'll hit our email list for you if you pay us, and then you can just go nuts on on the list, and you can go sell to them as soon as it's done. And in fact, the number one like there was a conditional rule that if you sponsored a webinar, you, like the rule was like you cannot put them into the SDR cadences as soon as the webinar is, is done. So, <laughs> so the alternative, in short, is one just accepting the facts, accepting the truth, accepting things for the way they are today. Um, this format is awesome. I think this is going to be the future. Um, and at Nextiva, we tried, we're, we, we, uh, tried out a new tool that we really like called Crowdcast, which is similar to this, but it's still kind of webinar -y. Um, the only difference is that you can invite people from the audience, uh, up one or two at a time to join the screen and interact. And on the sidebar, there is a chat. Um, there's like an interactive chat that's happening the whole time while the webinar is happening. So in short, like there's a few things that people don't like. They don't like being sold to. They don't like that. It takes 20 minutes to actually get to the meat and potatoes of a webinar. They don't like those long, boring, stupid intros. They don't like those company slides where you talk about whatever the company and blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> right. And they want to interact. They want to get involved. So the current webinar model does not do any of that. And that's why you're going to see a shift to, to, to styles like this. And also platforms like Crowdcast, which are innovative and different than say, you know, WebEx, right? Or On24, very expensive, very kind of corporate-y, enterprise-y. They're known for, for, for that stuff. Um, and um, I, I don't know, I think those companies are going to be in real trouble. So I'm going to pause there, Chris, let you, let you bounce off of that and uh, we'll keep it going.
Man, I almost have two pages of notes based on what you said. So we're going to be able to go forever here on, on both this topic. And I have like three or four ideas about other things to talk about. So the way I see it, one, I think the decks are done. I just don't think that they're, I don't think that they're needed. If you're going to present a deck, just record it and put it on demand. Like, I don't think that needs to be presented live. The key is what is the, what is the point of the live format and how do you deliver value in order for people to show up live? And so I think the way that that is, is by inter- having some type of audience participation, like the live Q and a format. And another reason why I like Q and a is because it's, it covers what you want to know. It's about what the audience cares about. The second piece is that for G and I continuous content stream of new questions and ideas to answer. And so it's not like we're guessing what you guys want to know. The, the, the audience tells us what they want to know. And so that's a way to, uh, that I think is really important. One thing you mentioned, mentioned G is that when people would come to sales hacker, it's because one of the reasons was they didn't have the audience so they needed to leverage leverage you and your audience, and um, and something that I think about on that side is like they might have not had the audience, but they could have if they executed, and you know what I mean. And so like I think that's one thing. It gets me into another place, which is syndicated content. And I think I'd love to go into some detail on that because I see companies just throwing money in the trash, doing that stuff, paying sixty dollars a lead, going nowhere. $200,000 a year annual budgets for syndicated content that drives just a ton of junk to SDRs. Um, and, and so, um, to get back on, on track, like the, I, I do believe that the future of the webinar format is what we're doing right now. Another thing to take away is that what we're doing right now can be also done in person. And so we've been using almost this exact format in a live event strategy so micro, I've been doing this in a couple of cities already with Justin Welsh and Josh Braun, where you invite 50 people into a space, you cover a topic for 20 minutes, you get live Q&A for another 80, but the key is that you're filming it all. And then you have high production, like, and that event put costs us with travel and everything else is eight to $10,000, significantly less than a trade show and significantly better impact. Um, and so that's... Uh, that's kind of what I'm feeling on this one. So you want to, uh, is yeah, there anything I else you want it, to man. talk about uh, syndicated content? That's not one that we've talked about before. Um, the, I have not, I, I've just audited companies that do execute it. I've never executed syndicated content because I don't need help getting to the audience. I know how to get to them. Um, and so that's the only, uh, the only value in syndicated content is if you don't know how the same thing I feel about um, some traditional PR styles is like, I don't need your help. I can go and target the people and get to them directly. Hey, Joseph, could you throw yourself on mute? There's some audio coming through. Um, so yeah, G, want to want to go a little deeper there? Yeah, totally. Um, so here's here's kind of the deal with these content syndication and and lead gen companies that you know syndicate eBooks and and on demand webinars and stuff. If you look at how they do it, which a lot of them won't tell you this, but if you just look at like just think about what's happening. You're giving them an ebook, right? Or a white paper that your company has produced. They are, they are going to take that content and kind of rebrand it as into like a co-marketed thing, right? So it's going to be like your company in collaboration with, you know, lead vendor company um, presents this, right? And they will embed that content as a call to action in like a lot of their blog posts and a lot of their 
parts of the website that are getting traffic, probably with banner ads and CTA buttons and things of that nature. But what they won't tell you is what are those content? Um, what are those articles and blogs and pages that they are um, advertising your assets on? And I, I can guarantee you that like for the overwhelming majority of the time, it's on very top of funnel traffic. It's, it's on um, articles on their site that get a lot of top of funnel traffic from Google and from other, other sources, right? But a lot of it is like top of funnel organic traffic. So just like what Chris is saying, I don't need your help. That's exactly right. If you're a good marketer and you know how to build top of funnel organic content, why would you need another company to rank for those terms and promote your shit? Why wouldn't you just figure out how to rank for those top of funnel uh, keywords and outrank them, get the brand recognition yourself, get that traffic to your own website, retarget your own traffic, be in control, advertise the content you want on those articles instead of paying for it. Why would you pay for, it's so mind blowing. That's why I think these companies are not going to be around. Why would you pay for top of funnel? I just don't get it. Like you're paying a middleman to do top of funnel for you. It makes, it makes no sense. And these are the kinds of things that marketers don't think about, especially kind of the older school marketers that just want to pay for shit. You, you know, it's, I don't know if it's, a, I think it's a mixture of laziness and just like not knowing how shit works and not being realistic about the times that we're in today. But you know, if you have to think, if you have to look at your marketing budget and think about where the money's going and like you're spending money on this, like Chris said, $200,000 budgets for like big companies that syndicate eBooks across all these websites that are doing top of funnel. I just think it's a complete waste. Uh, I'll pause there, pass it back to you, Chris, but I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. I mean, we, just for reference, like when I audit companies, we typically see win rates that are similar to the run paid social for an ebook download and have an SDR follow-up. It's 0.1% if that win rates on syndicated content leads, you're paying money to just waste your sales team's time. They may as well just go outbound. They'll probably have more success. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, I think that's, if anyone's running that, I would stop immediately and figure out a better way to use that money. Cool. So let's jump. This is kind of a follow-up from Lonnie. Lonnie, you want to ask the question? It's a follow-up to the webinar uh, topic. So follow-up question about webinars. What content would you recommend for a follow-up email for webinar attendees? What offer should be in there? Yeah, um, <laughs> no offer for one. Uh, so what you should do is send the replay. And um, in that replay follow-up email, you should also have a secondary CTA that says, hey, um, you know, just in case you want to talk with an expert about what we do, we're here. And that's it. Right. So you add value, you give them the replay, and then you have a fallback option. Just in case they're curious, we're here. I'm there for you. But I'm not trying to say, hey, can I get 15 minutes on your calendar? I would love to show you the value of XYZ because blah, blah, blah. Right. So you, you skip all that and <clears throat> you just keep it a very soft option. And I'll tell you why this works. Um, when I was running marketing at sales hacker, I figured out that if you give people options, they really like that because it feels like they're in control. So I'll give you an example. We ranked number one in Google search for, um, the keyword sales, Excel templates, 
sales Excel templates, sales Excel pipeline templates. And what most companies will do is they'll, they'll give you like, you know, like a bunch of like fluff content just to get it ranking. And then what they'll do is they'll say, um, give us your info, you know, your name, your email address, your phone number, company size, industry, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you want the bundle package with all the templates, give us that. What we did was uh, the opposite. We said, here are all the templates one by one. You can download each one individually for free. You don't have to give us any of your contact info. But if you want the bundle all at once, you don't feel like downloading these one at a time. You just want all 20 of them. Then you can give us your, your, just your email address and you can download everything at once. Right? So, so giving them the option worked. And because it was highly relevant, it was a highly relevant offer. Uh, and our goal was just email list growth. That was it. So also the CTA was, it was known that we weren't going to try to sell you. We just want you in our email list because we want to send you content and we want brand and we want to earn your trust and credibility. Right. Um, so when you give them the option, the, the conversion rates on that, that offer were huge. Like that was like a 20% opt-in and I can guarantee you most companies are not getting 20% opt-ins anywhere on their site. Right. So, um, that's, I guess that's where I'll pause it. But in short, you know, don't try to sell on the follow-up of after the webinar, just give them the replay and then a secondary CTA that says talk with an expert, um, and let them have the option of what they want to do. For sure. So I, couple of data points to add to that. Um, a couple companies that we work with are doing a similar format to this for episodic weekly live event type things with guests. And after the fall, we have AB tested whether you send the content or whether you send an offer to get a demo. And you actually get more demo requests when you just send the content instead of asking for the demo. Pretty considerable more amount. So um, definitely send the content. The second thing I would add is why are we only sending the content to attendees? The content's relevant to a lot of people in your database. Why are we just sending it to the hundred people that showed up? You have 50,000 people in your database segment to the people that are relevant and give everyone the content. Um, and that's where you get the, the actual impact. You need vol in email, you need volume, quality and volume in order for that to really work. Like, so the hundred people for the, uh, the, webinar recording, let's imagine 30% open rate. And then off that, like what's 5% click through is great over the total audience. You get five people on your web website watching the content versus if you had a hundred thousand, then you got whatever the math is 500 people on the, uh, no, it's five, 5,000 people on your website watching the content. If you have 5% click through, but that's an incredible, um, performance number. So those are the two, those are the two things I would say, just keep it really simple. Yeah, exactly. And no one's getting 5% click-through rates on emails <laughs> these days. You know, like that, like that, if you are getting that, that's really good. Um, yeah, I mean, the other part of the sales hacker strategy with, with the webinars was growing the YouTube channel, which is a, a highly underrated uh, brand highly. channel. Highly, highly underutilized. Like most companies are failing at YouTube, completely failing. Like go to any SaaS company's YouTube, it's a ghost land. It's a wasteland of just garbage content, like outdated product, you know, demo replays and like stupid explainer videos that were shot in 2016 that look like shit, right? Like no one's really doing you. No one's really doing YouTube the right way. Like it's the no second one. most including, popular search engine in the world. Ex 
Exactly. And the, the reason why companies aren't really paying attention to it is because it's really hard to get it right. Mm-hmm. Like t- to get YouTube right, you've got to invest in it and, and not just money, but like focus. Someone's got to own it. There's got to be a roadmap of what we're going to do. Like the, the thing about YouTube is that if you optimize your content really well, man, that's, it's going to go because like Chris said, it's the second biggest search engine in the world, right? Uh, outside of Google itself, it's a Google property. So, um, you know, Google lends a tremendous amount of preference to its own platform. So, you know, a lot of queries in search actually now have videos that are the preferred format for top ranking, uh, results. So a lot of questions that people are probably asking about your products and services or industry, um, are showing up in, in YouTube and you're not there. So I'm like, I, I, it blows my mind how many times I go into YouTube and I search for the things that companies are opting, uh, optimizing for in search. And I see like some like consultant from 2012 with like 800,000 views and no one knows. Right. And that's probably a reseller of your shit. That's probably a, a potential. That's probably someone who resells like your stuff. And like IT, this is very common. Like you don't see the actual vendors there. You just see a bunch of resellers that did like some whiteboard video with poor quality in 2012. And it's got like 800,000 views and like 97 comments. And you know, there's a link in the description where all that traffic's going. Right. So (laughs) I'm just saying it's, it's a huge opportunity. I don't know how I even got to this point. Uh, That's how fired up I just got. But (laughs) I'll pause and pass it back to you, Chris. Yeah. So, um, a couple of things. So, um, we're, we're really pushing hard on YouTube. I'm bullish on it. And I will not say that we have like a million followers or getting a ton of views, but we're, we're investing a lot of time there mainly because over time you start to get, uh, vulnerable to specific channels. And so if you are like 2016, I was with the company was very vulnerable that I worked at to Facebook ads. If Facebook ads shut off the next day, we would have a really difficult time. And so they, at some point, the whatever the, breach was uh, Cambridge Analytica happened and we, they took out company targeting for the most part on, uh, on Facebook ads. And that was our best performing thing. And we was just gone overnight. And so over time we've started to try and spread out the audience to what I would consider more owned properties and also organic properties. So try and use your paid to move people into an organic channel. Um, so yep. Spending a lot of time on, on YouTube. I think that it becomes the way that I see it is it becomes the repository for the long form content that you should be creating every week and then search optimize for that. And then use, like I use LinkedIn right now to drive people either to, I use short form content on LinkedIn organic to drive people to long form content on our website or on YouTube. And so I think that is a, uh, a really interesting approach. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And you know, people are, people always ask me, Chris, I know they ask you a lot too. Like, how do you measure brand? Like YouTube subscribership growth is, is definitely something I look at to measure brand. Like if, if you're not growing your YouTube channel, then you're actually missing out on brand opportunity. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I use YouTube subscribership growth as kind of a, kind of just a sounding board on like where are we headed? Right. In terms of brand. Like if you, if you look at that over or year over year and like from 2017, you have 18 subscribers and then 2020, you have 24 subscribers. (laughs) You gained like two subscribers a year. Well, you, you know, brand's not really doing much. It's probably one of those companies that are relying on outbound and ads to, and, 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 you know, similar tactics to, to drive growth. 
Yeah, across any channel for that matter, that type of metric can work followers. The key is inside of the followers of subscribers is who is subscribing. And so make sure that they're the right people. And the next piece is engagement. So in YouTube or anywhere for that matter, like the number one way that I measure, especially organic social, is what are people saying in the comments and who's saying it. And so we've kind of brought, we, we broke that down last week. So we'll kind of uh, move on from that. But we got, a, we got an awesome question from Alex Emery. And so we'll kind of pivot there. Alex, you want to jump on video and ask your question? Nobody wants to ask him today. Okay. So we will all ask this one. Do you have any advice for an SDR that doesn't want to become an AE? Anything to highlight in a resume to break into a marketing specialist or demand general? All right. Um, yes. So the best way to do this, very few have done it. It's not easy. And the, the reason why very few have done it is because um, they just think that, okay, I was an SDR. I'll present my career stats, like my baseball card stats to the marketing team or to, to the job that I'm applying for as a marketer with my SDR stats and just say, well, it's adjacent and it, it, it's the, the skills are applicable. So someone should give me a shot. I know the industry, you know, I have some baseline level of, of skills and someone should give me a chance. And unfortunately that's never going to work. Um, because the only way I would give someone a look, right? Like I have, a, I lead a marketing team. The only way I would give a, a SDR a look that really wanted to join the team is someone that came to me with a specific plan right? That has never done marketing before. I would want to see the following steps. I would want to see one, um, what specialization of marketing do you want to be in? Don't just say, yeah, I want to be in marketing cause it's cool. And cause I don't like being an SDR and I don't like sales. I just did it as a barrier to entry for my career, but I really love marketing. What in marketing do you love? Right? Look at that T shaped marketer model where you have all these different disciplines in marketing going like this, and then going down very deep into one specific area. So no marketing team right now, no marketing leader wants to hire generalists. And I, I'm, I'm really big on this and, and it's, it's for good reason because I've audited companies before that when I look at their marketing team structure and you have eight people doing the same thing, <laughs> just with slightly different job titles, you have tons of inefficiency overlapping and people doing the same work. Right? So, a SDR that wants to get into marketing needs to come to me and say, specifically, what I love is social. Specifically, what I love is Facebook funnels. Specifically, what I love is user experience and design. Okay, awesome. You've identified that. Great. The next thing I want to see is like, what are you doing on your own terms to actually like create some work for yourself, right? Do you have a passion project that you, that you're doing, right? Um, if it's content marketing, did you start your own blog and start writing and start trying to figure out how to optimize things and build traffic? If it's ads, did you take a couple hundred dollars of your own personal money and start running ads to one of your burner websites just, just for experimentation? And could you come to me with a summary of those results, right? Um, what is it that did you, do you have like a cooking channel on YouTube and you're building a subscribership there? And you're syndicating all that content to social and you're building a social following, right? So, so what are you doing to get things started to show me that you already have a deep passion for what this is? You've identified um, something that is, is going to be a focus for you and a specialization. And you've already taken some steps to actually put, you know, 
paper, paper, uh, the, the pounding the pavement, right. As they say, like you're already doing stuff. So don't just, don't just come to the table with nothing. If you come to the table with these things, you're gonna have a much greater shot. So that's the, um, that's the advice I would give Chris. I don't know if you have anything. Yeah, you, you crushed it. I think, um, in that position, the, the only other like uh, advice I would offer is that if you want that, you need to take control of your career. And so the way to do that is, is action. And so I would, I would approach two, one of two different ways. One is find an opening inside of your company where you can do a side project. And so if you're an SDR, you better be hitting hundred to 120% of quota and then go and say, okay, I'm doing this, but go to your marketing leader and say, you know, I see an opening to do better community management on LinkedIn, or we're not running ads on Facebook right now, but people like, I think that they can work. Can I have a couple thousand dollars to test this? And so you can either find an opening in your company. That's how I was able to move my career from being like a very traditional marketing manager focused on sales enablement and trade shows and things like that. And I just went and did it. Um, the other option is to do it on the side. So I'm a big fan of, of whether it's my employees or anyone having side projects because the learnings of the side projects then bring value inside of the company. And so, you know, start an, start an Instagram and try and try and figure out how to sell stuff organically. Start a podcast about something that you care about and get that to a thousand subscribers. And then what's going to happen if you do the side project is you're going to actually have leverage over your company because they need the they need the podcast. Then you're not coming in like begging for a marketing specialist role. Other companies are coming to you for a marketing manager role because you've already done it. And so those are uh, a couple ideas I'd offer. Yeah, and you, and to, to cap off on that, you you would be really surprised to see how many existing marketers on the team have not done any of that. If you, if you come to the table and say, yeah, I've built a podcast audience to a thousand subscribers. Yeah. I built an Instagram organically from the ground up from zero to 20,000 followers. Or yeah, I built a blog from scratch to, from zero to 10,000 visits a month. Wow. Yeah. A lot of, guess what? A lot of marketers have not done that. In fact, um, a lot of marketers now, uh, I think now more than ever before, just like with sales, uh, the microscope is, is very intense. The magnifying glass is looking at everything in high degree of scrutiny. So if you're one of those um, marketers in a big company ecosystem and no one knows what you do, you, you're not carrying a number and no one knows what you do all day. You're just, you kind of just float around somehow making it, you know, those people, Chris, you know what I'm talking about? You, where these companies with all these brand marketers and stuff. And like, it's just like, you have no idea what's going on. It just seems to be a lot of bloat and no one's really like driving performance. Like those are the people that are going to get cut. Like eventually, like the CRO is going to say, well, look at our marketing budget spend. Look at our headcount. We're in a crisis. We have to cut who's on the chopping block. And it happens all the time. I see it all the time. And it's happening now. So don't let yourself be one of those people. And I'll, I'll pause there. Mm -hmm. the, the closing thought is instead of asking to get the next role, earn it. Demonstrate that you can do it. Cool. And next question comes in from Lindsay. I think this is an awesome question. Lindsay, you want to, uh, you want to ask it live or would you prefer I read it? Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just eating my lunch. Um, <laughs> yeah. My question was about community. We actually just hired our first community manager at Exonify. She started this week and I don't think she's done it before. We didn't have, you know, a large talent pool to pick from here in Kitchener Waterloo, but I just love to talk about 
ways of building your audience and how to do that effectively. I mean, I know helpful content is the best way and interesting insights, but I'd love your perspective on that. Cool. I have a couple follow-up questions before you go. Um, the, The first one is, are there any particular channels that you're focused on? Uh, LinkedIn, our blog, that's about it right now. Some paid advertising, but not very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. Um, the second thing is, is, is it all under the logo or is it intended to be all under the corporate logo or through personal brands? Um, we have one thought leader in the company. We play in the learning space. So he's, mm-hmm. uh, his brand as well. Mm-hmm. That our brand we also are just launching our first podcast too so that's going live in the next week Mm -hmm. and the third question is what is um what is like the for lack of a better term on on the fly like the total addressable market for the content that you're producing like what is the community Put, put a fence around it for me uh, it's so we're, it's funny because we're a training solution for frontline employees. So healthcare workers, grocery associates, retail associates. So all of a sudden, like the relevance of our platform has shot up larger than I could have ever imagined, but it's the people who support the frontline and they make up 80% of workforce. So there's a lot of them out there and we target uh, learning and development people who support them, ops people who support them. So it's a, it's a large market. Got it. Thank you. G, you want to start? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've done this um, with sales hacker and there are, there are a couple of like, there were a couple of huge things that, that so, so for context, for everyone who doesn't know, um, sales hacker started off as an events company and, um, our, our, the, the CEO of sales hacker, um, hired me specifically for two purposes. One was to get out of the events business. He was long ahead of the curve on this stuff that's happening now. And he called it, he predicted that if you are an events company, you're in big trouble if that's like your, your main thing. So the goal was to transition to digital. So there was already a community actually that was, um, kind of, kind of started off the ground by doing local meetups, kind of like what Chris was saying, um, before how you can go into specific regions, like maybe Dallas, maybe New York, maybe whatever. Right. And just do small meetups of 40 to 50 people film everything. Right. So that's kind of how sales hacker started building its community by being an events company. And then, um, it evolved into doing conferences. So we, uh, at its peak, it became three major conferences a year, uh, sales hacker, New York, sales hacker, London. And then we did the revenue summit in San Francisco. Right. So we already kind of had a head start with building community because we were an events company, but taking everything to, and it was a blog too, but taking everything to digital meant figuring out an ecosystem of, of, um, of, of essentially like a rhythm of like a marketing flywheel, an organic flywheel, a a rhythm of activities that would always be happening to continue producing content at high quality and high volume. So the components of that were ranking highly on search engines for top of funnel terms. Um, because that's actually a brand building strategy that people don't think about. Like if you're always like, think about HubSpot, like 
and I know they're a giant, so this is, this is kind of a unique example, but like no matter what term you search for, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, whether it's customer success, they have the ultimate guide on it and it's ranking in the top three positions in Google, right? So it, that's one thing we, we've realized that we can actually do better than HubSpot and we outrank them for a lot of huge <coughs> terms like sales operations and sales development and cold calling um, because we figured out that their content, while it was good, it was robotic and dry, right? It didn't come from, it didn't come from a unique and, and authentic voice from the sales community. So that leads me to the second point, um, which was we would get uh, people from our industry to drive everything for us. We would say, hey, um, would you like to contribute to our blog? We built a, a contributor, um, <clears throat> a contributor network. So a contributor program where you could... Um, essentially submit to be a part of it. And then whenever we, let's say we were trying to do like a month focused on like, you know, account executive, um, the, the top 10 things you need to do as an account executive to improve your career. We would hit up all the people who are influential among AEs in B2B sales tech and get them to do webinars with us, get them to do videos with us on social, get them to submit blog articles on, uh, under their authorship. So a lot of crowdsourcing of, of digital content, getting everyone involved, which is ultimately what community means to me. Um, and yeah, so once we, so once we had that going, the other thing we would look at really closely was email list growth, right? And not like, Hey, sign up for a sales consultation or sign up for, um, you know, a demo with one of our partner companies. It was just be a part of our email list. Just don't miss out on all the great content we're producing. So we, we kind of, we kind of, you know, shifted that conversation instead of like join the email list, like every other company does, it says we're providing exclusive, the most valuable, the most exclusive content in the industry and don't miss out. So, so email list growth was the other North was basically the North star metric of the entire company. It was organic traffic and email list growth. We ran very, very little paid strategies, but the strategies that we did run on paid were, were, were targeted and tight. And, um, we essentially did co-marketing with other brands, right. So that had overlapping audiences and it, and that would make sense to do projects with like virtual events, um, webinars <coughs> and, um, like Q and a ask me anything type sessions. So once you get like a foundational building block in all these areas and you get into a rhythm of doing them repeatedly and consistently over time, a podcast as well, started a podcast from the ground up. Right. So it's all these things that Chris believes in deeply. And so do I, um, that you need to, to do a lot of this stuff well in order for it to work. So you start doing one thing really well to get that nailed down. You start doing the next thing really well. Once you get that nailed down, you do the next thing really well. You don't just start trying to do it all at once. You go all in on one of them, whether it's podcast, whether it's webinar, whether it's AMAs, right. Whether it's blog content, you pick like one or two things and you focus relentlessly on that. But that's where I'll pause and, and allow for some reaction. I know there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, right on. So my answer will be a little bit more fundamental or elementary, whatever you want to call it. The first part of being able to start a community is understanding the community and being seen as a peer. And so that's one place that I think a lot of brands miss right now is that they're not seen or can't speak to the audience as a peer. So first step there, the second step, especially if you're just starting, is that you need to treat your first 10 people that are engaging the same 
or at, at such a high level at, as the same as you're at a thousand. So you have to really care about the people inside of your community. And I know it feels fluffy, but it really does matter. Um, and it, it, when you do that, it changes how you behave and the things that you do. Um, and so kind of layering on to what, uh, what Katano said, my stance on like, if you were going to start somewhere, it would be a podcast or a video podcast, and then move that through two or three distribution channels, LinkedIn, YouTube, and email. Um, and I would start to interview people that are inside doing it. Like I'm sure that you, you know, Amazon or Walmart are probably a big customer. Like I try and find out someone from there and interview them. And we talked about this a lot uh, earlier in the week. It's the process of going out and finding those people and meeting them and talking to them leads you down a path where then you know who they're hanging out with and then you know what they're talking about. And then there's this and the, the dominoes keep falling to a place where eventually you feel like you're part of the, their, their community. And then at some point, if you continue to really understand them, you can assume a position of thought leadership inside of the industry once you assume them, or once you understand them enough and you have the credibility. So that's kind of like a, a, a different way if you're starting really small, how I would uh, go about it. Yeah, yeah I um, like that. And but the one thing, Chris, that we've talked about before is we actually hired one of our customers as our thought leader. So he is a learning and development professional and very well known in the communities. We're a bit ahead on that one, which is good. So he's doing the podcast and starting from there. Yeah, I am uh, just for everyone that knows, I am a huge fan of hiring one of your best customers or your most evangelistic customers and then using them as a pillar for your content engine and having the marketing team build the framework around them so that all they have to do is show up and share their expertise. They don't need to deal with videos. They don't have to think about what topics they don't have to figure out logistics events, who to talk to. They'll have ideas, but it's about, it's the marketing team's responsibility for any SME inside of the company. If you're selling to, you know, CIO is like, you probably have someone that has an expertise about that in the company and the marketing team needs to build the framework around them in order to use, to leverage their expertise and then distribute it. Um, so yeah, very, very, very uh, bullish on that approach. I think a lot of, I, I do believe that you're ahead of the curve and I think that smart companies will follow you. Yeah, Chris, two, two points to cap this off. One is uh, the secret weapon that Sales Hacker also had was our CEO got high, heavily involved in, in the thought leadership and marketing, right? So you need somebody from your company outside of that customer that you're paying to evangelize for you. You need someone to be that consistent face, Nobody buys, people are tribal, you know, they want to, they want to be part of the, part of the group, part of the tribe. And the way that they do that is they latch on to a person that they can self-identify with. And if it's just the, you know, the, the brand company page, just trying to do everything all the time, it becomes faceless and it's really hard to build engagement that way. So you need somebody to be that, that stakeholder from your company. That's always driving everything. And our CEO wrote a book. And, and he was a subject matter expert in sales. So that helped a lot. Obviously, if your CEO can write a book about your industry and is, and knows it really well, then obviously you're going to have a tremendous advantage. The, that was one case for us. And then the second part of that is Julian's wanted to know, did you pay these, <laughs> did you pay these influencers uh, or, you know, contributors, however you want to phrase it? Uh, the, the answer was no. <clears throat> and here's Me how too. you do this. You, 
Yeah, the answer is no. And here's where a lot of companies get it wrong. Like right away, they think, oh man, you know, we want to go for like the biggest influencer. We want Gary V. You're not, it's not going to happen unless you pay big bucks. So what you have to do is get micro influencers when you're starting out. And when you're growing this thing, you have to find the micro influencers, the people who are less well-known, but still have some influence. And you want a lot of those because that, that adds up to be more than just one mega influencer who just wants money. So, you know, don't just think you have to pay 10,000 bucks for XYZ big name to, you know, be on a webinar with you guys um, because you can find micro influencers who are, who are willing to do this for free. Mm -hmm. And the the key, if you're going out and looking for partners, like, um, like Justin Welsh and I did in an event in LA before this whole thing happened in, in February. And the key is to try and figure out what's important to them and then deliver it. Right. And, and it doesn't have to be money. And so like for Justin, I had a sense that, um, he's, he has a lot of stuff going good on LinkedIn, but doesn't have any video. And so I was like, Hey, you want to team up and do this event and I'll pay for all the videography. And then you'll get 90 minutes of video content that you can then use to whatever you want to do in your career. So just try and be empathetic and try and understand what people might need outside of money and then try and just position your offer to how that, how that, um, how it would be attractive to them. And so another example, if you're doing a podcast, like I'm super bullish on just calling your podcast, something that people would think would be cool to be on the learning and development experts podcast or the frontline learning experts podcast or whatever. And then you just invite them and they're like, yeah, nobody, nobody else has ever invited me on a podcast. I'll go do this. And so I think that's a super easy way to, uh, to get people without having to like pay them money or anything. I prefer to do it all organic because I think that it's authentic that way. Cool. We have a, uh, thank you, Lindsay. We have a question from Julian. Um, Julian, you want to ask it the video one? I mean, yeah, I'm fully on board with video. I think it's a great channel to get people to consume your content directly in the feed. For example, you know, it's, it's a lot more human than writing articles, but you know, we're an agency. We work with clients that are, in a more traditional space, manufacturing. So getting them to produce video content is incredibly challenging. You know, even, even just simple things, saying things like, well, just take out your iPhone and, and record yourself answering a question. Even that is, even that is, you know, it's unheard of for them. When they think video, they think of highly produced ads. And so it's, it's just a big hurdle to overcome. So, you know, any, we've tried different things, but any insights you guys have are appreciated. For sure. I have a, a lot that I can kind of jive with on this topic. So the first one is that I don't try and convince anyone to do anything. I try and attract people that already believe in the things that I do. And so I can quickly tell whether someone's aligned or not in my strategy. And that's what drives whether or not I work with someone or something. Um, the follow-up to that is a couple of things. Um, the first one is that when I started what I was doing, I thought that my target market was medical device companies. It was where my experience was. It thought, thought that thought that was going to be where I was most successful. None of those companies want to buy what I'm selling. And so I followed the market. The market told me where to go. And now I'd sell the SaaS because SaaS wants it. So um, that's the second piece. And then the third one, which I think is the most interesting for you and has definitely been a key driver into why my business has been able to grow so fast which is that 
instead of trying to tell someone what to do, I showed them what good looks like. I, I kept telling people, Hey, you should do these micro events instead of your stupid fucking trade show booths and nobody would do it. And so what I did was I went and did two micro events. I executed them. I learned, I got the 90 minute video. I distributed it. I knew what it costs. I knew what the return was. I knew how to do it. I knew how to measure it. And then it positioned the people that wanted to do something like that to come and ask me how to do it. And so um, I would say that the number one way that you'll be able to convince people is by showing them what good looks like. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess the best opportunity would just be doing it for ourselves and saying, here's what we did. It worked really well. You know? 100% brother. Thanks for the question. So the question is, how do you convince management to get into audio and video content space if all the company has experience in is limited to blogs and outbound email outreach? So the question is, how do you get management to get on board with doing audio and video content when historically all they've done is blogs and cold outreach? <laughs> All right. Um, well, you know, Chris, I don't think it's the answer is that much different mm -hmm. from what you just said to the previous question. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's showing them examples of, of, of where other companies in your space are doing it right. Potentially competitors. Right. And, and ultimately what it comes down to really, this is what, this is what um, it's going to be tough for a lot of people. If you don't, if, if like they just don't align with you, like your core beliefs, like they don't believe in brand building Hey, Chris, you know, where I'm going with this. Yeah. If they don't believe in like, you know, po podcast, if they don't believe in some form of brand building, then, it, and, and, and it's just a conflict that, it, you know, just exists internally between you and them. And they're not willing to see eye to eye. Um, then you should leave that company. It's probably not the right fit. There's just fundamentally, there's just too many things that don't align and it's just, it's not going to work because you're going to continuously have this problem, like where, you're trying to fight for, for your ideas to be heard for mindshare. And like, you shouldn't be at a company where you have to really fight so hard for, for something to, to happen. Right. Like you, you shouldn't want to try and tackle everything, but there should be an open mind and flexibility to try some things, right. To at least invest in one brand building activity or one thing that, that can shift your company from operating like a boring stale, you know, SaaS company to, you know, an exciting media company. You know, that's really the way I see things shifting. And ultimately the takeaway is that if there's that much conflict and you can't get anything going because like th the mentality just is, is too locked into this is the way we've always done it, then you should probably just leave that company. Yeah. I feel like that's going to be a statement that's made on every one of these episodes because I get so many messages about it too. It basically comes down to, in my mind, um, whether, you're approaching your career proactively or passively. And I made this switch in my mindset when I was 26, which is that nobody has control over my career but me. And so at the beginning of my career, I thought that, that somebody else had control over how much money I made or whether or not I got the promotion. And when you decide that you have control over it, then it becomes liberating almost. Because if you can't get the couple of things that, that you can get done, you can complain about it and beat your head against the wall, trying to convince someone, or you can say, I'm going to go look for another job with people that are already aligned with what I do. Um, and it seems simple, but it was like probably one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life. 
So would uh, would definitely recommend it. Gee, we are it's not seven thirty at night this time, so we are actually on a on a schedule, unlike the last time. So for those that haven't been before, we usually go like twenty or thirty minutes over because there's so many questions we got a lot to talk about and participants stay along. But we're going to try and stay on time for this one. And so closing thoughts. What do you got? Yeah. Closing thoughts, man. Uh, you know, guys, I just appreciate everybody coming through. Um, it seems like this format is working. The engagement's been high and, you know, um, Chris and I, we really, I guess we never really talk about why, why are we doing this? What's the point? Uh, I guess we don't really have a reason why we just like doing it and it's fun. And that's really, that's pretty much it. We, we like interacting with you guys. Um, it, it gives me a break in, in, you know, the, the daily grind. Uh, we're not going anywhere. There's no live events happening in person. So this is a nice way to kind of just give a human touch to our daily workflow. And, uh, you know, we, we may decide to parlay this into some kind of, you know, sales hacker style community. Um, we, you know, we're still toying around with some ideas, but, um, that, that's pretty much, that's pretty much where I think I'll, I'll cap off. Um, Chris, any closing thoughts? Yeah, totally appreciate all of you joining. I hope it was I hope it was valuable. Um, the reason that I do this is one to just purely I think that I have some ideas that are interesting that can help a lot of people and super happy to share those ideas. And the second piece goes back to what I said to Julian is that I think that every company should be doing this. I don't see how they're not. And so I'm in the on a mission to show companies a different way to approach their marketing um, and show them why it's more effective, how to do it, how to measure it, and all those different things. And so that's where I'll close. Uh, appreciate the questions. Super grateful that you all joined us today. Hope you have a great week. Stay safe and healthy and hope to see you back on Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. For those in Europe, we will, uh, we will let you know. Um, we'll highly consider making some type of, uh, some type of slot that accommodates our European audience as well. So thank you all. Hope you have a great day.